This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, thank you for joining me today on Uncorking a Story. How did you like that brand new introduction? Just uh, put that into production this week. I guess that's why it's brand new. And I'm also changing up this format a little bit because I realized one thing I don't really do is talk to the audience that much. And uh, somebody said, Mike, you know, you have such a great personality. No, they didn't say that. Uh, but they did say, Mike, why don't you talk uh, to the audience a little bit? You want to help people become better writers through your show. Why don't you give them uh, a little a little preachiness? You know, I'm not talking like Bono here, like like Bono getting on stage. I love Bono. Don't get me wrong. I love Bono. Seen you too many times. Want to go to Vegas to see the new show. But they said, you know, Bono likes to talk to the audience at different points. And that's usually when people get up and go get a beer or something. At least that's when my twin brother would, would go up and get a beer. Last time we saw you two together was geez it was the the joshua tree tour not the original one in 87 but the one they did in uh, 2016 or 2017 i think he tried every ipa at metlife stadium but uh, i digress we have another exciting episode of uncorking a story to share with you today and i'm uh, just really happy that you're here with me and i want to remind you to uh, please follow uncorking a story on all social media including instagram facebook youtube twitter wherever uh, there is social media, there is uncorking a story, I mean, even on TikTok. Although I don't really know what to do with TikTok just yet. I mean, I do, I put videos up there, but it's, it's, you know, I'm not dancing, you know, I'm not dancing or, or sticking fruit in my mouth. Like uh, some TikTok stars, uh, you could find us at uncorking a story on any of those platforms. I'd love it if you would go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. And that's really selfish of me. But, um, I, you know, I need I need at least a thousand followers on YouTube and then I can maybe start making some money on the show. You know, maybe put a little wind in the sails of my own pirate ship, help those kids of mine uh, get through college um, and, and pay off their their loans early. You never know. 
Um, but it is also a great way to interact with the audience. I find that of all the social media platforms, YouTube um, does have a, a great interaction. And, and I do love interacting with the audience and reading your comments and all that good stuff. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. Okay, that's all the business I have to share with you. I want to talk about my exciting interview with Christina Henry. Christina is a horror and dark fantasy author whose work includes Horsemen, Near the Bone, The Ghost Tree, Looking Glass, The Girl in Red, The Mermaid, Lost Boy, Alice, Red Queen, and the seven-book urban fantasy Black Wings series. Wow, she is a prolific author. She joined me on Uncorking a Story to talk about her latest novel, Good Girls Don't Die. And as we're going through this conversation, two things really stuck out to me uh, about Christina. And I think these are very important lessons for any writer, aspiring writer, or even, um, you know, those of you who might have a few books out now. Sometimes miracles happen. That's lesson number one. And by that, I mean, Christina got a three book deal with a publisher before even having an agent. And um, that three book deal then became a six book deal. And when that happened, Christina realized that she needed representation. Of course, having a six book deal made it very easy to find an agent at that point. The process was a little bit more smooth for Christina than, than some of the rest of us. And uh, heck, I think even agents should have been querying her at that point in time. Now, that would be something, right? Agents querying authors for their work. I think there's probably a parallel universe somewhere, you know, if you if you believe in a little bit of that mumbo jumbo of, uh, of different timelines. Maybe there's a variant of me somewhere where agents are coming at at me and, and just just trying to, you know, get me to go with them for representation. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you've got to look like uh, Tom Hiddleston for that to happen. That's for all you Loki fans out there. Um, now, that's not the norm, of course, having agents chase after you. But it just goes to show, in Christina's case, that really anything is possible. The other thing about Christina, she broke another rule. And that's that she didn't really develop a formal pitch for this latest book. She basically told her agent, just read it. And the agent said, okay. The agent read it and loved it and agreed. And when the agent was trying to sell it to the publisher, the agent said, you know what? I, I don't have a pitch for this book. Just read it. The publisher read it and, of course, agreed to to take it on and, and publish the work. Um, so that was another trend that Christina was able to uh, buck, so to speak. So the big lesson here, the big lesson is that while there are best practices for selling your work to a publisher, those rules are not always set in stone. With the right story, the right timing, and, of course, the right amount of luck, Han Solo be damned, you too might be the exception to the rule. My goal is always to help you become a better writer, and that is your lesson for today. All right, without further ado, let's uncork Christina's story. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Christina Henry. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to have you here. Um, I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Um, when I was fairly young, I decided I wanted to be a writer. I think this is not uncommon. Um, I read The Lord of the Rings when I was 12, and I decided I wanted to be a writer, like right then and there. And I ran off and I got a notebook and I started writing a book that was not unlike The Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm sure that'll be a shock to you. And, um, but I always, always, um, wrote 
after that, I wrote for myself. Um, and then when I went to college, I majored in fiction writing. I did my graduate work. I got an MFA in writing. And then um, I decided that when I was about 32, I was like, you know what? I keep saying I want to be a writer. And the only way you can be a writer is if you write something. So I wrote a book and then um, luckily I managed to sell it right away. And um, I've been published uh, actually by the same publisher ever since. So what were you doing between the time you finished your MFA to, you know, your early 30s when you when you published your first book? How did you spend the time in between? Well, I um, I worked in a writing center, you know, helping high school students learn how to write. Um, I had a child, which was kind of time consuming. Um, Yeah, but ultimately it just came down to um, just something in my brain, just being like, stop saying someday, you know, you just need to do it. So was it was it something that was kind of within your control, that little voice inside your brain, or was it was it coming from somewhere else, you think, in terms of this this motivation or this inspiration to to sit down and write this first novel? No, I mean I always wanted to write. I just um never really kind of put my back into it, I guess. Um I was always writing. I was always writing snippets of things and short stories and Um, but then I was like, you know, I just need to do it. I just need to sit down and, and actually do it. So, and I think that's true for a lot of first time novelists. Um, a lot of times, you know, you just need to say to yourself, okay, if this is important to me, then I'll devote the time to it. You know, I wrote my first book when my son was two years old and, um, I was, you know, trying to write like while he was down for a nap, basically. And then if he woke up, I would take him to the park and put him in a sandbox and sit on a bench and write, you know, by hand, just so I would have the opportunity to do something. Um, I think that a lot of times we think that our circumstances are impossible and we can't get things done, but there's always a way, I think. Um, if you, if it's something you really want, I think there's a a way. It's kind of like that, that adage, we, we make time for the things that are important to us. Yeah. I mean, and I had, um, I had run my first marathon, like shortly before I decided to sit down and actually do this. And I think running the marathon for the first time really kind of crystallized my focus because it's such a long-term project, you know. It takes four to five months to train, and then you go out and run for hours. <laughs> and um, when you finish, you have such a sense of accomplishment. And I, at that time, I was like, you know, I just ran a marathon. Like, I can write a book. That's going to be easy compared to this. And and was it easy? Was it easy to write that first book? It was easy to write. Yes, it was. Um, I know that's terrible to say. It was not difficult for me to write a book. Um, I always, I genuinely feel like I always had it in me. I was a lifelong reader. And I think that when you read a lot, you learn a lot 
unconsciously about the way stories are structured, about the way characters are developed, about the way plot works. You don't necessarily need a degree. You don't need to have gone to school for writing. I mostly went to school for writing because there was nothing else I wanted to do. Um, But I think that if you read a lot, easy to write. Writing's never been hard for me. Um, I write because I enjoy it. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. What were some of the big lessons you learned about yourself while you were putting that first manuscript together? Um, don't know, like that I necessarily learned a big lesson unless it was like, maybe I should have done this five years ago. You know, I, I think that um, like I said, I kind of always felt that I had it in me and, um, you know, like a lot of people, especially when you're younger, you just always say, oh, well, I don't have time, but really you just want to do other stuff. You know, <laughs> when you're younger, you want to hang out with your friends or whatever. And I, um, just really, um, once I started writing the book, I knew, that it was the greatest book ever written, but I was very, very confident that it was saleable. I knew that I could sell it. Um, and I did. Um, so it's, I, I, I wasn't, I think like a lot of writers who, um, kind of suffer from a lack of confidence in that way. I was like, Oh no, somebody will buy this just needs to get right in front of the right person. And, well, luckily, it did get in front of the right person in a short amount of time. But I think that that part is the part that a lot of people struggle with. And sometimes I think about, too, um, so much of this industry is luck and timing. And um, that's not something people really like to hear. But it's not a reflection of you or your work. It's just like, you need to get your stuff in front of the right person who makes that connection with it. And how did you find the right person for you? Was it just a a matter of querying blindly or did you have an approach to it? So I tried for nine months to query agents. And if anybody's ever tried to get an agent, this is actually harder, I think, than getting a book published um, because there's only so many agents and a lot of them have full lists and, um, you know, I really wasn't getting um, any traction with agents. And at the time, this is a thing that isn't even done anymore. Um, I was able to submit to Ace Rock's slush pile. Um, they had open queries. You know, you could submit. I think um, it was like a summary and 10 pages. Um, you could submit through an online form. And so in 2009, I submitted my book to um, the slush pile. And a week after I submitted it, an editor asked me for the first three chapters. And then a couple days later, she asked me for the full manuscript. And two weeks after I'd started the submission process, she offered me a three-book contract. So that's not something that happens to everybody again i know that part of it was luck and timing um but i think that avenue isn't even open for a lot of people now i don't think that most publishers do accept do open submissions anymore yeah 
when once you got that three book offer, did you then have to go and find an agent or were you able to just negotiate that yourself? Well, I did it myself. It all kind of happened very quickly. I think that, you know, most first time authors are just thrilled to have the contract and they don't think a lot about the terms. Um, and I ended up the first book sold so well that they actually kind of rushed in and got me under a second contract very quickly while I was looking for an agent. So I had sold my first six books without an agent. However, once you sold six books, it's very easy to find an agent because they know that your book can, you know, your work can be sold. Um, and I was actually doing an event with another author who was on the same publisher um, who said to me, you know, I'll introduce you to my agent. And that person is now my agent and has been. It, it's almost at that point, like a bunch of agents should be querying you for your book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it all, like I said, it all happened really quickly. I mean, I went from, you know, within a few months from having no contract to having six books under contract. So it was like a very fast process, but it was because once the first book did pretty well out of the gate, the publisher was like, get her under contract, get her under contract for more books. So, um, yeah, that was... It's unusual. It was a very unusual situation. Um, but I'm still the same publisher. I'm still the same agent. Very cool. Well, what can you share with us about Good Girls Don't Die? Gee, what can I share about this book? <laughs> um, this book is a little tough to talk about. It's been a challenge, actually, from the start. Um, I started writing the book during the pandemic. Um and there was, I was doing a lot of kind of comfort food reading. I was reading a lot of cozy mysteries. And I had an idea that I could write a cozy mystery. I thought that would be fun. And I started writing it. And very quickly, the story took a left turn. That's not uncommon with my writing. And um, I kind of went with it. And went with where the book took me, which ended up being a completely different thing. And then when I finished it, I sent it to my agent and I said, I don't know how to describe this book to you. Just read it. And she read it and she said, this is great. I love this. I'm going to send it, you know, to my editor. And she said to my editor, I don't know how to describe this book to you. Just read it. Um, so I think I would say to readers, I don't know how to describe this book to you. Just read it. <laughs> well, uh, good advice. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, you used a phrase, which was where this book took me. And I'm curious as to, you know, you had, you had one intention going in, but it seems like something else took over. And I'm just trying to get a sense of what that something else could be. Um, I sometimes say that when it, alternately I will describe my writing process as magic and or laziness. Um, I hate to plot. Um, I don't think there's any fun in that. I think that if I plot, 
out a book if I outline the whole thing, then why would I write it? Because now I know the end. And that's the fun of writing for me is discovering the story as I go. So pretty much every book I've written has been that process of discovery where I had no idea where it was going to end up. Um, a lot of times if things just, you know, surprise a reader, they'll surprise me too when I'm writing them. Um, I try very hard actually not to think too consciously about the book. I want to find the story a way a reader would find it. And that way, and I've heard a lot of authors kind of approach writing that way. It, it keeps you surprised and engaged in the story. And hopefully that translates translates to the reader as well, because if you're surprised and having fun with it, then they're going to be surprised and, and enjoy reading it as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me, that's absolutely true. And like I said, for me, writing is fun. I don't consider it work. Um, I don't think it's hard. Uh, if it was, if it was hard, if it was work, I would do something else. This is, to me, this is, you know, fun you know i get to find a story um and i don't um whenever i sit down to write i'm ready to write i'm ready to find out what happens next do you feel as if the words come from you or the words come through you i mean i think they come from me they just come from the back of my brain you know it's a very subconscious process i just try not to like mess with it too much just let it happen i know the work is being done just sort of in the back of my head like things are churning and um working and then things just kind of when i sit down to write um it's ready to it's ready to flow out yeah do you ever worry that the stories will stop coming to you not me i <laughs> I think the bigger problem sometimes is I don't have enough time to write all the stuff that I think up, you know. Um, I Almost all my stories come from like a question or like one image that I have in my head. And um, a lot of times I'll be writing a book and I'll have like two or three more things that'll start kind of stacking up behind it. Like, hey, pick me, pick me. Um, and like right now I'm actually writing two books at the same time and I'm kind of just whatever one's taking my interest more at the moment, I follow it. And then if the other ones are taking my interest more, I go and follow that. Just, you know, I, I really love, even though I've been working professionally for, gosh, 13 years, um, I love the time when it's just me with the book and no one else has seen it. You know, my editor hasn't seen it. My agent hasn't seen it. Nobody else knows what it's about. It's just for me. What do you get out of that? I mean, why, why is that such an important moment for you? I think because really I write for myself. I mean, um, I know that especially in writing workshops and I've taken a lot of writing workshops, they want you to think about your audience. Like who's your intended audience. And my intended audience is me. I, my intended, intended audience is um, like I said, sort of the, what I'm discovering as I'm writing and what I like, what's making me happy when I'm writing it. And when it goes 
into editing and I'm polishing it and all that stuff, then I'm thinking about other people. But that initial um, process, that's just for me. Yeah. Does does that, you know, ever cause any friction when you're getting critical feedback from an editor or an agent? Because it is sort of so close to, I mean, if you are sort of the center of the bullseye in terms of a target, does that ever lead to friction or, or have I mean, you... When I go to, before I send it to my agent, you know, or my editor, obviously I give it a pass. And when I do that pass, which I just think of as the first editing pass, I try to anticipate the questions they will ask. And that's when I'm starting to look at it as an outside observer. So by the time it goes to my editor, it's 90% done. Um, I think I've been doing this long enough and I think you get this from other authors too where it's like if you've been doing it for a long time you kind of have a sense of like what kind of questions your editor will ask they'll be like oh you know what you know what was this person thinking here like could you add more detail here things like that and when you start to have that sense it's um it's a little easier and then it makes things easier for my editor too because I don't usually get a ton of notes when it comes back so but i think that um when i do the editing pass i'm thinking of it more the way an outside person would read it got it very cool i have to ask what is the poster in back of you oh it's um old boy the film old boy i see i know i don't know the film but what is the film old boy um it's a korean film directed by park chan woo and it is um, unbelievably beautiful, unbelievably twisted, unbelievably violent. It's just one of my favorite movies. And it was actually, um, there was an anniversary release this year. And um, so I went to see it at the Alamo Draft House. And um, I took my 17-year-old who was like, Mom, what is this weird movie you brought me to? And um, I... Uh, I got the poster there. <laughs> I was very excited. I was like, oh, can I take this? They're like, yes, they're for people to take. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you drawn? I mean, I know you write in sort of the sort of the, you know, the horror or fantasy genre. Um, mm-hmm. Are you drawn to those as uh, movies as well? Yeah, I mean, um, I watch a lot of horror movies. Um, I watch a lot of like Japanese samurai film. Um, I watch a lot of Korean films in general sense, not just ultra violent ones. Um, I don't necessarily love action films, although I do like action films that are ridiculous. I think in film, if, if there's going to be action, I want to see like, um, like a John Woo movie. You know, uh, like hard boiled. I don't know how familiar you are with Hong Kong cinema, um, or like John Wick. You know, something where the action is completely absurd. It's over the top. Um, it's not even remotely realistic. That's the kind of action movie that I like. I'm not interested in sort of bog standard car chases and gunfights. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm picturing the Matrix in my head when you're when you're talking about movies you might like. Was was that on your list of uh, of? I'm not a huge fan of the Matrix, 
partially because I think the actual heroic character of the movie is sidelined, which is Trinity. Um, I, but I think that um, the Wachowskis they take a lot from Hong Kong cinema influences, and I love Hong Kong cinema. So, where did your love of Hong Hong Kong cinema come from? Um, you know, when I was uh, in my early twenties, I worked at a comics shop, and we sold a lot of import videos, which is where I got exposed to a lot of things for the first time, like Hong Kong cinema and like Japanese animation and all kinds of things like that. So, um, I just loved. Um, is such a like Hong Kong cinema, especially from a certain period. I would say you know, up to the early 2000s has just a completely different energy um, from Hollywood movies. And one of my all-time favorite movies is Infernal Affairs. Um, And it actually got remade into the Martin Scorsese movie, The Departed, which I am not a fan of. (laughs) Um, But, and actually Old Boy was remade by Spike Lee. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Don't watch that version, though. Watch this one. Yeah, I will. I will put that on my uh, I, I almost said my Netflix, my Netflix queue, but. Uh, um, um, yeah, I know the days of getting the DVDs in the mail was the. I remember the days of spending two hours at Blockbuster Video trying to pick a movie out that may only be 90 minutes. So, you know. Uh, I have a real fondness for the video era. I think any child of the 80s has, you know, the a real affection for going into a video store and seeing all of the boxes and having just all, of, it felt like all the movies in the world you could choose from to watch. And I used to love that. And I used to love, I think it's the same thing I love writing, right? It's that sense of discovery. It's like finding something you never thought you never even knew about and um i think that it's such a shame honestly that everything is in silos now on streaming yeah but yeah it's interesting we still in my town stanford connecticut have one video store left critics choice video Mm. still has dvds and vhs tapes i don't it's got to be some kind of money laundering operation because (laughs) nobody is going into that store ever and it's got a fair amount of square footage so i'm trying trying to just do the math on that one because it just doesn't make much sense to me but maybe they own the building you know it's It's possible you know and he's living his dream of you know trying to bring back the uh the old vhs movie business Mm -hmm. um anyway well this has been a fun conversation christina where can people purchase a good girls don't die They can purchase it at any bookstore Um, or you can go online to bookshop.org and order it through there. You can support independent booksellers if you do that. We will put a link to uh, bookshop.org in the show notes uh, for easy purchasing. Uh, And of course, people can always go to their local independently owned bookshop as well. And Christine, if people wanted to connect with you, you have a website and some social media handles you can share. Uh, my website is christinahenry.net. I confess I'm a bad blogger, so I do update very intermittently. The best place to see updates from me right now is on threads 
or on Instagram in both places at author Christina Henry. Very good. Well, Christina, thank you so much for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.